snitches, we be cussing. Be advised. Hey y'all, I'm Jen. I'm from Oakland and I'm a queer black feminist scholar. This is Darren, hailing from the mean streets of Anaheim. I'm an introvert, a novelist, and a nerd. We're early 30-somethings with three kids and over a decade of marriage. This is a podcast about the realities of blackness and adult life. We do adult differently. This is That Black Couple. Snitches and bitches and witches and stitches in my ridges and bitches and liches and glitches. I'm on my Nicki Minaj shit today. <laughs> Don't laugh. It was good. Thank you. That's exactly how she raps. It all had, it all rhymed. Yeah. And so only counts. two of them was the same word. She uses the same word. China and China and China and China. At least I had at least four different words. But it's the word before China. That's... All I'm saying is I'm trying to keep it light because this is a heavy episode. Yeah. So, greetings. This is Jen. This is Darren. I would like you today to grab your red wine for all you wine drinkers. I don't drink the wine. I drink my grapes when they're still firm. I don't even like raisins. You like champagne, though. Is that wine? Technically, it is. Do they step on it? It's a sparkling wine. Do they step on it? I, I'm not from France. I just have a problem with them stepping on my drink. I'm not sure. I don't think anyone actually really steps on it. They do grapes. step on it. They do, and it's nasty. Not like, if we're, if you're drinking it here, they haven't stepped on it. I don't believe you. I'm pretty sure that they are putting their nasty toes in people's wine. And it's a thing. Think you better stop drinking that champagne. Oh, God. Anyway, back to the episode. So, get your red wine, have a seat. This is a bit of a heavy episode, so please be prepared. We're talking about Charlottesville, talking to kids, and what that means, even if you're not a parent, right? So, this is not a parenting episode, but I know a lot of folks are aunties, cousins, sisters, uh, play aunties, babysitters, people who interact with children, and we feel very strongly about how children are incorporated and socialized into what's going on in the current political environment. So that's what this episode is about. And Darren, take it away. All right. So in first things first, we're going to be talking about everything that happened in Charlottesville, giving a quick recap for everyone to make sure we're on the same page and really understand what has happened in Charlottesville and what has happened since. And we'll also talk about how those things affect black families. In the conversation, we'll be talking about a very personal experience we had this summer with our children and experiencing racism that was displayed by other children towards our children. And then in the reflection, we're going to talk about how we were raised and how our parents dealt with racial subjects with us and how that affected us as children and how it affects how we parent our children today. Okay, let's start with a brief summary of what happened in Charlottesville. On Friday, August 11th, Hundreds of white supremacists marched at University of Virginia in Charlottesville to protest the removal of a statue of failed Confederate general and known traitor Robert E. Lee. They were carrying tiki torches and chanting things like, we will not be replaced, Jews will not replace us, and blood and soil. Hot ass mess. Hot ass mess. The following day, they held a Unite the Right rally that was subsequently defended indirectly by the president as being a part of the violence on both sides Mm -hmm. but the violence on their side included a woman named heather Heyer being mowed down and several other protesters injured in the process also deandre harris is the 20 year old black man who was brutally beaten in public daylight and needed 10 staples in his head and had a broken wrist here we are two weeks later and people are now being arrested for these actions and many are still questioning how this type of violence can exist and thrive in this country and that's my issue, right? So this question about how can this type of violence exist in this country? I saw a story of a guy who 
disowned his son because he found out. Found out. Found out through Charlottesville that his son was a Nazi. His adult age son. His adult age son that he apparently raised. And pays rent for. In the same house. Right. He discovered through Charlottesville from a picture, I guess, on the internet or something like that, Mm -hmm. that his son was a Nazi. So he disowned him. And... (laughs) Like, I'm, what's the word? Verklempt. <laughs> but I mean, like, this is my thing. Like, I, the while this whole thing was going down, I was still home with the kids. And they're off from school. So I had the news on because I was following it very closely to see what was going on. And obviously writing for various publications about it. And, you know, we have a three, five, and nine-year-old. So they're watching it. And they're like, is this real? And I'm like, yes. The oldest is like, oh gosh, what is Trump saying now? You know? Because he's done. With Trump. He's so done. <laughs> when Trump said something about Douglas, Frederick Douglas, he was like, why can't he just leave our ancient heroes alone? <laughs> he was so sick. He's just like, it's anything sacred. <laughs> but at I let nine. at nine. And I let them watch it because this is the world they live in. You know, I I am very comfortable with letting them watch this stuff because I don't believe in abstinence parenting. And this is something we talked about before we had kids, this idea that keeping stuff from children does not protect them from the stuff you keep them from. Right. Right. So keeping the current political environment from them, so hiding it from them doesn't protect them from it. So... If I had said, oh, no, this is not real. The KKK is not actually marching. No, no, those are not real white supremacists. They're fake pretend ones. Like, what does that actually accomplish for them? And what does it do when they grow to be adults and realize, no, wait, actually, when I was nine, there was actually like this really huge major cataclysmic event that happened because of the political shifts in the White House and in Congress and an overall kind of shift toward the right that was really motivated by kind of xenophobic, anti-black, anti-poor, anti-trans sentiment in the country. And rather than teach me about it, my parents told me to just imagine a world that didn't include any of that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a forced belief in what is not real. Right. And I think there's a lot of conversation around whether or not kids should be, people say, if you should expose kids to these conversations. And there's a lot of debate about whether or not you should expose kids to political stuff. Right. right? Or expose them to conversations about trans identity or gender, which to me is just... I do not understand how you, so, so political stuff, right? If my kid goes to a public school, public school gets closed or defunded, they're exposed, right? Or period. Just going to the, the public school, they are exposed to public funding. Right. Or just walking out in the world as a black child in this country, they're exposed to racial animus. So it's not like I have a choice in how they experience white supremacy, or how they experience racial aggression or bias. You know, and this this is this is probably an oversimplification. When I, when I think about this, the first thing that actually comes to mind is Santa Claus. And how, you know, our oldest, he's nine. I can't remember what age he was, but it was very six. early on. He was six. Where he had already thought the whole Santa Claus thing through. And thought, wait, how is this real? Not everyone has a chimney... Like, how is he really getting around to everyone around the whole world in one night? You know, really thought it through from a logistic standpoint and said, there's no way this is an actual real thing. Right. And who would we be as parents to say, no, child, you figured this whole thing out and you thought it through. But no, just keep believing the lie. <laughs> just just believe the lie because, you know, we don't we don't want to expose you to the truth. Right. When, was... The truth that he's already figured out and he's already experiencing. Right. So what did I say? Well, do you want to know the truth? Or do you want to keep believing? Because that's my thing. I think that you should give kids a choice. I think you should give them a choice. 
And if they choose to to believe that stuff, if that's something that they they say, I don't, I'm not interested in knowing. I don't really want to know. That's a different conversation. But if they want to know, like, why would you lie? Because that that's what abstinence parenting is. That's this this idea. Oh gosh. So let me go ahead and just talk about it. So, you know, I cuss. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I have pretty much since like high school. And I I used to be very like really stressed out about it because I was like, oh God, I'm going to hell because I'm cussing, you know? And I've since let that go. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, when I was pregnant, people would say, oh, you shouldn't cuss because, you know, the baby can hear you. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I love that that's the response. <laughs> the baby can hear me doing all types of raggedy shit, like eating fucking hot dogs. And talking about so-and-so's, like, nappy edges. And, I mean, and let's not even get to the actual science of it, of what the sound actually sounds like inside of the womb and how it's, it sounds it's not like, like water. a clear conversation. Right. But it's like, what gets me is that people are like, the baby can hear you saying a cuss word. And that shit irritates the fuck out of me. Because I'm like, we, oh, God. It's just, <laughs> oh, Jesus, I got to calm down. It's making me mad. Because this this feels like another way that people like try to control women's bodies and try right. to control women and try to be respectable. And listen, if that's your if that's your thing, that's your thing. I would never tell somebody else how to parent or how to like operate if, when they're pregnant or like if they want to have a baby or you know anybody who has a uterus who's interested in in being pregnant or whatever. You know, if that's how they want to be, that's cool. But for me, you know, I do feel like this is a way when people read someone um, who is pregnant and they read them as, as identifying as woman and they think, oh, you know, let me give this person some advice on how to operate because I want them to be respectable. And they, they couch it in like trying to protect the baby, but my kids don't cuss. I've been cussing since shit for fucking ever. Yeah, when you talk about being exposed to something. My gosh. They've been fully exposed. They're fully exposed. They immersed. have heard every word and every combination of it. Mm-hmm. And my kids don't cuss. I've never gotten like a report. I think my oldest said the B word one time to explain it to somebody else because they had said it the wrong way at school. He was like, no, the word you're looking for is this word. And just so you know, I don't use it, but this is what it means. He was actually being a dictionary for someone else, mm-hmm. but letting them know, hey, I don't use that word. But I I do know what it means. And that's my thing is like, like, so we can kind of get off topic. But my point with like Charlottesville in particular and how like omnipresent those stories were, they were everywhere. We were at the gym. They're at the gym. I saw them walking through like anywhere there was a TV. I saw that stuff up everywhere. And so the kids were asking like, what are they talking about? And I have no problem saying, oh, they're talking about the white supremacists who are marching in the University of Virginia. You know? And I'm like, people are probably just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe she said that. But what am I supposed to say? Well, there's these nice gentlemen who are marching with these torches. And um, they just needed some, they needed a candlelight uh, so they could demand that this uh, beautiful bust of this guy who really wanted to secede from the nation, they wanted him to be honored. And so that's horrible and dishonest. And misleading to your kid. I feel like as parents, we have a responsibility to raise our kids right and to raise them to be upstanding adults. And so when I, when we talk about all these sensitive issues with our kids, when we talk about race, when we talk about gender, when we talk about sexuality, you know, we, we don't, I don't think we shield them from any of these concepts, right. but what we do is we talk to them according to their maturity level. So I'm not going to talk to my nine-year-old the same way that I talk to my three-year-old, but I'm not going to hide any of these ideas or concepts from my three-year-old. I, I think that's irresponsible parenting. I think, like I said, my job is to raise great kids. It's my, it's my job to raise kids that understand the fullness of humanity and, and the differences in identity and how all of those are okay because- we can all define who we want to be in this world. And I think when when we approach any of these concepts, we approach it from that standpoint of, I'm raising you to understand people, I'm raising you to understand the world, and I don't want you to be an intolerant person walking this earth. I don't think that's representative of, of us as parents, and I don't think that's befitting of you as as 
as a person, I think we need to take that responsibility seriously. Right. And I think the other thing, I think probably the last thing I want to say on the point before we get into the conversation is that one of my biggest issues with like the whole abstinence parenting thing and this idea that if you simply just don't tell kids about stuff, then that somehow is preparing them for the conversation down the line was obviously a, it's not, it's proven to not work. Right. It's like, if you think about abstinence, like in sex education, there's tons of studies that show that when you teach abstinence, kids actually have higher rates of um, unwanted pregnancies and, right. and higher rates of STIs and STDs and other at-risk behaviors because they don't actually know how to like be responsible well, with their bodies. And, and, they're, and they're curious. They're curious. Rightfully so. And no one's taught them what to do. Um, but also abstinence parenting in terms of other things. Like, so this idea that we shouldn't talk to kids about non-heterosexual coupling and non-heterosexual sexual activity and non-heterosexual lifestyles or not talk to kids about non-binary gender. Like that to me is a major problem because people exist who are non-heterosexual. People exist who are not along the gender binary. So, and they could be our kids, our kids. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty certain at least one of our kids is queer. And I'm pretty sure that that child who I'm talking about knows that they're queer because we have made it very clear like what queer is and and they know that their mother identifies as queer. And we've had conversations about their mother being queer, you know? So it's like when you have these conversations with kids, they don't have to be afraid of their own bodies. They don't have to be afraid of their own identities. They don't have to be afraid of who they are sexually interested in and attracted to. And they don't have to be afraid to move throughout the world as they are. And that's my problem with this whole like idea that we should not share parts of reality, parts of the real world with children. Because at some point they're going to grow up and they'll be adults. And all you've done is left gaps in their knowledge of the world that they actually have to now grapple with. And how much harder is it going to be now that they're a whole person, a whole adult who doesn't have you there to hold their hand and walk them through their daily lives? Then we have these fuckers at Charlottesville. That's where they come from. back it's time for us to have the conversation we had an experience with our kids during a recent trip to ohio that raised a debate regarding if racism is learned or if it even matters if it's learned or not Mm -hmm. so we talked about how that factors into charlottesville right and we disagree yes we did so we're gonna put it out into the podcast ether and see what the listeners think yes yes okay so here's what happened so basically The same week that Charlottesville jumped off, we went to Ohio. And if you know anything about Ohio, it's white. That's white with an H in the front. It's H-W-H-I-T-E. White. That's how you have to say it. White. Like hummus. White. Hummus. Hummus. Like that. And, um... Basically, that week, we went to this water park. It was a hotel with a water park inside. Pretty nice place. It was fun. Kids had fun. Whatever. Um, My afro was popping. I had my little swimsuit on. I was all juicy and black. You know, juicy black afro pop. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know what to do with it. You know. And the kids were there. It was supposed to be a nice fun event. So, we kind of went to the pool and took all three of the kids and there was just like this little wading pool like a three foot deep pool or whatever and they had a basketball hoop the basketball hoop was like a four-sided hoop so you could have it's like four courts in one little pool area and all the hoops were back to back to one to one another so there was about like 10 basketballs and they were like big heavy balls and they could float in the water so whenever you threw it into the basket it would like hit the water and splash everybody or you could like float on them or whatever but the whole point was that you're supposed to play basketball with them because the basketballs right right so we are getting in the pool the kids are like oh my gosh it's basketball and we're tall family obviously everyone all the parents here are over six feet tall and the kids are all tall so we play basketball 
So the kids are like, oh, let's go play basketball. We get in the pool. In the pool, there's like six or so like little, like they're all white kids. Pretty much everyone at this place is white. And all white kids, they probably had to be between the ages of like eight and I say 12. Yeah. Eight and 12. And then there's a, a group of teenagers and there's like maybe five, four or five yeah, teens together. That's all right. Also all white. And I think they knew each other. It seemed like they might have been like older siblings to the kids. Yeah, it looked like they were all from like different families that came right. together or right. something. So they knew each other. And the teens were playing with one ball and they kind of had their own little court. And the kids were playing with the other ball. So mind you, I said there were like 10 balls in the pool and there's like six little kids and like one set of teens who had one ball. So that's seven balls. If all of them had a ball, that's seven. So there's still three left. So for our family of five, we could have technically had three and everything could have proceeded as it was when we got in the pool. Howsoever, we get in the pool and I notice that they start kind of looking at us. And I was like, okay, because you know me, I'm petty and I'm crunk. So I'm like, whatever, y'all, I don't care how old you are, you're not going to fuck with my kids. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what you're not So I'm do. watching because I'm like, don't mess with my children. Like, do what you want, whatever, but don't mess with my children. So they start talking to one another and like whispering. And then I saw them like, they had one, one little girl, she was obviously like the ringleader, she was like scar. You know, she was like Scar Jafar of the of the, of the little the little white kid clan. You know, I think she had kind of like some that slanty eye look too. She like, was cute. She was a cute girl. She was round faces, so she didn't have that skinny face like Jafar and Scar. No. But she definitely had that Scar Jafar like she was sending them out. She had like that finger like go go get that ball, you know. <laughs> and so she's sending the little boys out to go get the ball or whatever and they just grab all the balls they grab all of them and some of them have like two balls now and then they just stop playing they stop throwing them into the hoops and they basically start sitting on them or like waiting on top of them so that they're using these flotation devices and so you know my kids my kids are very like I'm, i protect them a lot from a lot of stuff like this and i really didn't want them to have their feelings hurt and be i didn't want them to perceive that these kids didn't want to play with them and i didn't want them to perceive that these kids were doing this on purpose so my first reaction was okay i'm about to send my kids over because I, I would see because it's hard to keep those balls if you have two of those balls and you're a small kid it's hard to hold both of them right. down so when one would pop out <laughs> i would like try and grab it or send one of my kids to grab one so we did that for a little bit, and I was like, "I'm tired" because I'm about to cuss one of the little kids out. So they got like they had the balls for a while, and then I saw them glaring at us, and that's when I'm like, "Okay." So when you think that you won, that's when I just like go over your head. <laughs> so I go over to the lifeguard, and I'm like, "Hey, hey, lifeguard! It's a nice, light, nice, skinny white lady." And I'm like, "Hey, what, lifeguard? Um, you know, my kids want to play basketball," and she's like, "Yeah, I see what's going on." And I was like, yeah, are they supposed to just be holding on to all the balls like that and not throwing them into the hoops? And she's like, no, they should be throwing them. And I was like, yeah, it kind of looks bad, don't you think? And she was like, it does. I'll talk to them. (laughs) (laughs) So she calls them over and they let all the balls go and they're pissed. Like, teens are mad, little kids are mad. Um, And then what cracks me up is then, like, this other group of people come get in the pool and they're, like, brown and black and obviously queer. And I'm like, ooh, kiki. So, like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then I could tell they were really mad, you know? Um, and so so it was interesting to have this whole altercation happen. This whole thing happens, very passive-aggressive thing happen um, the same week of, as Charlottesville. Because this, to me, is one of those ways, you know, that people uh, kind of pretend as though, like, subtle forms of, like, casual racism and subtle forms of, like, casual aggression against Black folks um, are not that big of a deal and, like, they don't escalate. And they, and they like to act like that stuff isn't racial. They like to act like, oh, that's just kids being kids. And it didn't matter who you were. It could have been anybody. They would have done the exact same thing. And we know that's a It's not lie. true because I saw them playing, right? They were playing just fine. There were other white kids in the pool. They were playing just fine. Other white families in the pool, playing just fine. We in the pool, all playing stops, right? And, you know, I think the other thing is, is that when I saw all these memes, Right. I think even President Obama sent a couple of those like tweets out like racism is learned and blah, 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 blah. So I, I, I have a problem with this whole like question about is racism learned? 
because I don't think it actually matters, right? So this idea about racism being learned versus, you know, some other way to to characterize it to me is very important. So I know we talked about this after Charlottesville, you and I got into a bit of a debate about it. And I mean, you were arguing that racism is learned and I'd like to hear more of what your thoughts were on the matter. Okay. So I really believe that when kids are born, kids are just born, right? Kids don't know anything. They're learning new things. And I think when it comes to racism, I I mean, I'm not a white person. I've never been a white child. I've never been a white parent. But my assumption is, you know, kids see what their parents do and then they emulate that. And that starts to become the way that they look at the world. That's That's the way that they kind of understand how to operate, what things mean, you know, what food you do eat, what food you don't eat, how you season it where you do go and where you don't go, what color is a good color, what color is a bad color. You know, I I feel like, you know, parents teach their kids and they teach them, you know, explicitly by telling them to do things or or instructing them in certain ways. And then they do it implicitly also just by by being being an example and your child kind of watching you. And that's that one thing I think people always say, you know, be careful with your kids because your kids are watching you. So even if you don't tell them something, you know, they see what you're doing. They hear what you say. And they take that as part of their education as as how to be a person on this earth. And so when it comes to racism, I kind of see it the same way. My my assumption is if I were a white person living in a white household, I would live a very white life and I would come to understand things in a white way. And so that's how I think white supremacy kind of breeds and, and continues to grow and grow and grow because it's something that they see that's already their lifestyle. And what is a white way? Oh, grow, growing up a white way? Yeah, what is that? What is a white way? Like I was saying, it's like it's like how you cook your food and what you eat. What you trying to say, Darren? Um What's trying to say, Darren? I'm I'm trying to say seasonings and I wanna know what you mean by that. I'm I'm trying to say there are cultural differences. Like like No seasoning? Not no seasoning. But like, very light salt and pepper. Right. I think like exactly the salt and pepper thing. Like we read recipes and, you know, sometimes we see, you know, those videos online. It's like, oh, that looks good. That food looks good. And you pull the recipe down and it says season with a sprinkle of salt and pepper. And we're like, I'm not seasoning anything with just so white salt and pepper. That's white people shit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just go ahead and say it then. It is though. And, and, and that's the thing. Like you grow up and you eat certain foods and you have a certain palate. And so that's but here's kind of my the issue with this. Like. Though. Here's my issue with this because this is why I think this is a larger conversation because that that so learning cultural kind of behaviors to me is different than like racism. And I want to blow this up because we are two cisgender people, yes. right? So I'm wondering then how do we learn how to be cisgender? Because that I mean I do think to some 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 effect like we learned we also learned transphobia. Right. I know that I definitely learned transphobia growing up. I know that I learned subtle messages. Like I was just watching Boss Baby the other day and I learned I learned gender normativity in very subtle ways. And I watched in Boss Baby the other day when they had that like part of the movie where they pick gender and they have a little shuffle thing that you go down like a conveyor belt and the kids are coming down and they have one side on the left for for male and one side on the left for female. And they just pushed them either way. And it was literally like, oh, they're teaching kids a gender binary, right? Right. That's simple, right? And so, and so, like, I'm, I'm, I understand what you're saying, and so I feel like absolutely, like, that is a way that we learn something like the gender binary. That's a way that we learn it. But I also think that one of my issues. So there's this is this is a, this is a kind of multifaceted issue because like we learn the gender binary in that way we learn it when we have to fill out forms for school and they ask for gender and the only options are male female right right? we we learn about race when they ask you for race and they only have a certain number of options we learn about uh sexuality when they ask you for your sexual orientation or whatever it is and they only have a certain number of options like you learn all that stuff based on how you're conditioned from like societal preferences and ideas about what's allowed to exist and what's important and what's not, right? But my concern is like when we talk about something like racism, when we talk about white supremacy and this idea that like racism is learned and then these memes that go around 
about like with these like white kids hugging black kids. And it's like, see, look, they love each other. Racism is learned. And then they do this in response to stuff like Charlottesville. I think that shit is such a fucking cop-out. Like, it's a cop-out to me because whether racism is learned or not has nothing to fucking do with the fact that our lived realities at this very present moment are with actual grown-up fucking racists who are running people over, beating them in the street with pipes, cussing folks out, shooting at them in front of police officers, setting up infrastructures that allow for us to be systematically lynched and publicly berated and harmed and killed extrajudicially. Like, whether or not this fucking white kid that you hired to take this fucking picture with this black kid is racist or not has nothing to do with the systemic violence that black people endure every day. I agree to a certain extent. Okay, what's the extent? So, the way I kind of see it as like a cycle, right? So at at some point, white people say we the best and we gonna conquer everybody, right? And so, in a very simple, basic way, we're saying that's when white supremacy began, right? If we can make that assumption, I know that's not completely accurate. So. I take it, but for the sake sure, of argument, if we want to reduce colonial history right. <laughs> to we the best and we are gonna conquer everybody, I mean, for the sake of the argument, so they so that we don't have to do the history yes, lesson today. Sure, they decided that right. we are going to colonize the entire world because everyone is an ingrate and an infidel, and we are the pure race, and we shall go through the world and invest in whiteness and capital and steal land and labor and rape women and use our seed to create new generations of mulatto children and still berate and degrade them as well and any African or anti or black or native indigenous or Asian or brown people who come as a direct result of our colonial decisions. And to this very day, we will set up infrastructures and institutions to punish those very, those very communities for the, the work that we did to create their generations of disparate and unequal treatment and conditions. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So that was where, <laughs> that was, we let's call that the beginning of white supremacy. Okay. Right. And so to me, white supremacy feeds off of itself. Right. So there was, the, there were these white supremacists and then they taught their kids to be white supremacists because their kids copied them. And as they grew and they grew and they grew and they tried to take over the whole world, white supremacy took over the whole world and then white supremacy was everywhere. And so it's almost We've also talked about white supremacy and if there's a way to ever actually do away with white supremacy. And I think the end of that conversation was that there really isn't. But if there was a way, it would be to not pass on those thoughts and ideas and beliefs to the progeny. It would be what Amar Rahman said and get a whole new planet and move all the non-white people, like Magneto said, and move (laughs) to a new fucking planet. And just say, no white people allowed. No white people. I just don't, I guess my thing is like when I see a white kid, I don't see them as devoid of racism. I don't see, when I see a cis person, no matter their age or whatever, I don't see them devoid of transphobia. When I see a hetero person, I don't see them devoid of homophobia. I think that's my issue is I don't see, uh, for saying that racism is learned, I'm wondering when the fuck they learning it because shit. You are consuming what the fuck your mom's eating in the womb. I mean, maybe then, I mean, they say, like I said, if they can hear cuss words in the womb, they can show here racial epithets and they can show the hell eat whole foods in the womb. I mean, that's already systemic racism. If I'm not, if I'm in a food desert and I can't even get access to a, a diet that allows me to properly nourish my fucking child in utero and you over there eating whole foods and Trader Joe's. I mean, then you're already experiencing, you know, the benefits of having a, a white supremacist infrastructure that benefits whiteness just by mere nature of being white because whiteness gone white in utero. So I'm wondering, like, when we say, like, look, white kids aren't racist. I'm like, yes, the fuck they are. I have never met a non-racist white person. I ain't never met one. It's like a unicorn. Like, everyone keeps talking about them. And there's like dragons and shit. I mean, I really want to believe the dragons exist. And Game of Thrones really got me really excited about this. <laughs> you never know. They could be like a savage land, you know, somewhere in Antarctica, like like an X-Men. I'm hoping, you know, the like climate change is bad and shit is melting. 
But fuck, if these fucking shits melt and a dragon comes out. <laughs> it's just been hibernating. I'm going to celebrate. It's probably going to kill all of, all of us. But I'll be excited that a dragon fucking came out. Yeah. My thing is like this. I've never met. Listen, if these kids can formulate a plan to ice us out of a game of pool basketball just because we were black and in a pool. And we know the history of black people in pools. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That was a rough, rough, rough thing to contend with. It was. And so, and that was very painful. I was sitting there and I'm having, it was very hard for me because I, I was trying to protect my kids and simultaneously like keep it together. Because being there in a pool with all those white people is already very hard. It's very hard to get in a public pool in this country. Like, and we've seen summer after summer, we see incidents of young black girls being victimized and brutalized at pools, at public pools, pools where they have a legal right to go, pools in places where they live, pools in places where they were invited to. We see police officers grabbing little 15 year old, 13 year old girls in their bikinis, pregnant women getting grabbed up at pools, black women just being beat up and grabbed up, handcuffed at pools. So for me, taking my children to a public pool where there are all these white people is already traumatizing. It's already very, very difficult. And it's very hard to really, really have fun. Like you have fun, but you're very cautious. You're very aware. You're very aware. And then to get in the pool and have these white children like glaring at my kids. My kids, I mean, my kids are crunk or whatever, but they're very sweet kids and they like to play with people. And like that middle child, like our daughter, she's like, she's, she's like very gregarious. And like, yeah. she was actually trying to play with the little girls and they were just so mean to her. You know what I'm saying? And that, that hurts me to see that happening. So for me, like, I understand the concept that like white supremacy, you know, is a construct. Absolutely. It's, in, it's embedded in institutionally and systemically in pretty much anything that we touch and, and, and yes. interact with in the world. Just like capitalism, just like heteropatriarchy, just like cis sexism, just like transphobia, all this shit is embedded. Just fucking, fucking ableism, all this shit. The fact that, you know, I was looking at this today, I was looking at my fucking light switches and I was like, them fucking light switches are high as fuck. Yeah. Our light switches in this house are high as fuck. I'm like, they didn't have no intention for anybody who had any type of need to have a lower light switch to even be able to walk in this fucking house and be able to turn on a light switch. Shit like that. Like, these things are obviously in the ways that we move throughout the world. But when we say learned, my issue with saying that things are learned is that it implies that if we just decided one day, let's just take racism off of the lesson plan and like take that out the curriculum and then it's going to go away. It's not. Yeah. It's not because if, if racism is truly just learned, then that means it can be unlearned. And I do not believe it is. It can't be because it's not like something that you get exposed to one time or for some period of time. And then voila, you now are a racist or you now understand racism. It is a process. It is a system. It is It, it is the intersection of both power and privilege. It is the ability to order things. It is a system of control. It's not just like, hey, I don't like that person because they're black. It's I don't like that person because they're black and I can do something about it. And not only can I do something about it, I can do it and probably nothing will happen to me for doing it. And that is not something that is learned. That is something that is enabled. That is something that is encouraged. That is something that is promoted. And that is something that is endorsed by an entire system and, and by groups and by other orders and factions. And I don't, I don't think that when people post those memes like, well, racism is learned, they're not, they're trying to ignore that shit. They're trying to be like, yeah. well, look at the kids, y'all. <laughs> but we're not kids. We're not kids. A lot of, a lot of people who don't know no better can hug each other. And just hugging each other doesn't mean that there's no racism. Right. I mean, that little white girl probably don't like that little black girl just because she's hugging her. Like, she might be hugging her because she, because somebody said, hug her, hug the little girl. Sorry, take this picture. Like, <laughs> like, and it, and it doesn't mean that she still wants to share her food with that little black girl. She might not want her to sleep in her bed. She might not want to swim in a pool with her. She might not want no black dolls in her house. She might not want no shirt with no little black girl on it. She might not want to watch no Doc McStuffins. That doesn't mean 
that that by nature of performance of public like love, this idea of like touching and like public allyship and vigils and you know hug and touch and kiss and touching fingers and uh, that shit that's not that's not how you beat racism i mean to be honest the only way that we're going to get rid of white supremacy and to get rid of racism is that white folks are going to have to actually denounce and dismantle the actual systemic power and privilege that they actually benefit from every fucking day. Yes, yes. They're going to have to say, no, I actually don't want to actually have that job because my name is Mary Sue and not Bonquisha. I actually don't want to get into this college because you know what? I did not earn that spot. It's actually not fair for me to do this thing. No, I actually won't take this money for this thing. I actually won't. They're going to have to actually divest from their own whiteness. That's the only way. Like the only way that white supremacy stops being supremacy is by disinvesting in whiteness. Like that's that's the only way. I mean, and that's that's what you were saying, right? It's 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 this joining of power and privilege, right? And I think that's you know when we talk about whether racism is learned or not, I think when we were, when we were talking about this before, where it was like, okay, well, if it's learned, then when? At which at which point? And we talked about like you know little white girls with black dolls and how they were like, I don't want this this ratty looking doll, I don't, you know, I want the white looking doll, right? And the I think I think the the thing to to look at there is. Why? Like, why would a white little girl not want a black doll? Like, at what point did she understand that is the ugly doll or that's the the doll that I don't like or I can't play with that for whatever reason? Like, I feel like there is a point where where kids see things. And I think I think privilege is the best way to put it. Like when like when we look at the TV, when we look at magazines, when we walk outside, when we do anything, privilege is already readily apparent and present in everything but mm. like like you were, like you were saying like the world is already bent to white people's will so i feel like i don't know at which point i don't know if it's the second you know they actually cry and open their eyes and even though they can't really actually see at that point they're already understanding that, that things are privileged to them in a certain way i don't know at their, what particular point but i do feel like there is something there of you know kids I mean, kids do any. All kids do this, where they 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 push the boundaries and they try to figure out what the boundaries are and, and where they fit in, what they can do and what they can't do. And I would assume, as a white person, there is just some privileges and things that you you figure out very early on that you have inherently because you're a white person. So then, my question is, if the if the if the structure itself functions differently, just because you are a white person, where does the learning happen? That's what I'm trying to say, right? Because yeah. you're saying if racism is learned, right? But if you're, but what you just said is that there's something that happens, and we're not sure when it happens, where the rules just operate differently. The rules just function inherently differently. So then, it, to me, it seems like it's not really a question of learning. It's really a question of like opting in. Well, so let's talk about the dolls, right? So to me. When I, when I heard that story about, you know, little white girls not wanting to play with black dolls, my first thought was, well, these little white girls probably only ever see other little white girls. So the even just just the very concept of there being a black doll, it was confusing. I mean, you were you were I think in high school meeting some people that are like, "Oh my gosh, a real life black person." I mean, right. if you've never actually seen a black person like in front of you talking to you that's a real life person, Already, I mean, <laughs> you got to think about that person's whole entire life. Well, of of course, you know, they're already white, they're already privileged, they already have the power. And if their whole life was only with white people, to me, they're already, I mean, they were already predisposed to racism because they're white, but they were all, racism was already embedded into the entirety of their life. Right. So, but what you're describing is if someone is able to walk through the world and not even see a person of color and not even right. be around a person of color, then that is describing a system where they're able to segregate themselves or their parents are able to segregate them to the point where they don't even have to interact with people who don't look like them. So that's not, that to me also isn't a question about racism being learned. That's a a question of of proximity and a question of gentrification, a a question of redlining. And those are other systems. Those are other parts of white supremacy. But if I would say the flip side is if they didn't live in that environment, right? 
their learnings and their understandings of the world would be different because they came into contact with other people in, in other races and other cultures and seeing how other people live and think and, and having the possibility of seeing their humanity. So you think that white people who live around people of color are not racist? I'm, I'm not saying that. Because I know a lot of racist ass <laughs> poor white people who live in the hood. Well, and, and I mean, and I'm saying that as the guy who grew up as the token black kid. I mean, I was always a token black kid. I was the one black kid at my school. You know, I was, I was always that one black guy that I'm sure, I mean, I never heard it with my ears, but I'm sure a lot of people are like, yeah, I have a black friend. And I'm sure in their mind, you know, it I was, was it, it was me. It's probably still you for at least it, two people. You know, <laughs> 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 you tried it. <laughs> but I, I mean, real seriously, I feel like, you know, as that guy, you know, I'm sure people saw me. People saw how I lived to a certain degree. They saw that I was a black person and I was real and that I wasn't necessarily just like them. But I think the learning comes in with with the world and how the per- the world treats you versus me or how your parents tell you certain things or how you see your parents interact with other people. I feel, I feel like your entire life is a learning. Everything that you're doing is a learning. And that's how you learn racism. And you I mean. I mean, we've talked about this before, like racism is not something that that white supremacy is what I should be saying. White supremacy is something that, you know, we all carry to a certain degree. Yeah. And so I feel like that's a learned thing, just like racism is a learned thing. When we learn it, when we understand it, and then what we do with it, I think, is where the questions really lie. I guess I'm still not convinced that it's a learned thing. I think I think I agree with you that the way that it's confirmed for you or the ways that it shows up for you. Like if you interact with, with white supremacist structures and you make decisions on how you're going to act on them and how you make those decisions are important. But I don't think, I guess I don't think that white people have to learn that they are dominant because at, to your point, if you live somewhere where you're the only color of people you see you live in a country where most of the presidents but one all but one look like you you know same thing goes for for maleness for for you know patriarchy being a guy and you see that there's guys all over the tv there's guys playing all the sports there's guys in the presidency there's guys in congress there's guys everywhere there's guys in most of the top positions and ceo uh, opportunities as guys leading most of the businesses on Wall Street, the banking industry. You're gonna assume, you're gonna assume that it's because guys are better. You're gonna assume that it's because guys are better. And now I, I think that's I think that's the 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 point is I would say that that's the learning. But see, I don't think that. So for me, that's not learning. It's it's kind of like a baseline for life. For me, that's social conditioning. And that social conditioning is systemic. That's what I think. So when I think about learning, I think about, hey, I'm taking this algebra class and I want to learn what, you know, Y equals MX plus B means and, you know, or Y equals 3X plus 6 or whatever. Right. And that's learning because before that algebra class, I didn't know how to solve that. Right. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that you need to have some type of like intensive on like patriarchy to understand male supremacy. You don't need to have that because we are conditioned and reminded every fucking day that men have a position in the world where they can really kind of treat non-men like absolute shit. And in a lot of cases, get away with it. We have the NFL that we can look at. We can look at the Floyd Mayweather fight from last night. He can beat his wife and have his kid write a note that says I witnessed him beating my mother and still has a job and makes millions of dollars doing the work and 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 gets cheered on and gets cheered on by women right like so I I feel like I think that learning when you say the word learning that it it conflates it conflates what we're actually talking about because I want to get to the systems and I think that learning implies like if we just take that little notch away, if we just take that little lesson away, then everything will be better. And that's my problem because mm. that absolves, specifically when we talk about racism, it absolves white people because it implies that white people are not the problem. It implies that racism is the problem, right? It's just that lesson in racism that's the problem, not the white people. And then it's like, oh, well, if we just take away that learning of patriarchy, we just stop teaching men 
you know, this bad man stuff, then they'll be better. But then it implies that men are not the problem. But but y'all are fucked up. And and the the system still remains. The so system remains. Even if you don't teach people, the system the is still system there. The system remains, right? And so same thing for fucking cis sexism and transphobia and homophobia. Like we didn't we didn't like Kim Burrell didn't pop up on her stage saying the shit that she said back in spring because of a lesson she got in homophobia. Because of like one thing she got where she was like, yeah, I learned this. No, it's because of a systemic and ongoing process that taught her that somehow folks who are non-heterosexual are not as good as her and that they should be trashed and that she had the power and the privilege to be able to say the shit that she said. And luckily she got dragged for that shit. <laughs> she did. Luckily. Rightfully. But but that's that wasn't a lesson. That was a system and a process that conditioned her into believing that that shit was okay. And when we say learn, it absolves the person. That's what my problem is. It's a, it's a process of absolution. When we say, look, you know, kids are not racist or whatever. Kids are not homophobic and kids are not transphobic or kids are blah, 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 blah. Yes, the fuck they are. Yes, the fuck they are. If they are living in this country... Yes, the fuck they are. There are studies that show that they absolutely are. There are studies that show that little girls, if given the opportunity, they will say and do racist shit. (laughs) There are studies that show that little kids will say and do racist and homophobic and transphobic shit. And they do it all the time. And we just write the shit off because we say, oh, they're being kids. And we can't have it both ways. We can't have it both ways. So I think, I don't know. I mean, Where are we landing now? To your point, I, I think what this all means in the end is it doesn't really matter if racism is learned or not. It doesn't. Because, like we just said, the system remains. The system so remains. Whether whether there's some teacher that's, like, handing out lessons or, you know, you're bo- you're just born and <laughs> you just arrive on this earth and, and you've, you know, come preloaded with, with racism, like, you know, like a, like, preloaded with windows or something. It doesn't really <laughs> matter because... The system remains. White supremacy remains. You know, heteropatriarchy remains. All, all of these things remain. And like you said, unless we actually work to dismantle the actual systems, none of it matters anyway. Absolutely. And so I feel like the answer to the question and what really initiated the episode, how do we get here? Where do these people come from? We got there because we refused to talk about systems. We refused to talk about systems. We refused to talk about the fact that the way that white supremacy operates to order our lives in the way that we acquire land in the way that we find out what schools we can attend. If we have food that we can eat, what kind of food we have access to. If we have jobs that we are able to get, what types of jobs are we able to get? When we start to ask questions about how we move throughout the world and what looks different for you based on your skin color. And we start to really drill down thinking about how that looks different based on your sexual identification, on your gender identification, on your class level identification, on your ability status. When we think about the how expensive it is to be poor, how expensive mm-hmm. it is to be disabled, right? When we think about these things, like legit, like it costs me so much money to be a fucking disabled graduate student and a mother. Like people trash mothers all the time, especially black mothers or whatever. But it is so expensive to be a mother and then have the nerve to be a mother who wants to be to get an education. This is the thing is like we spend so much time trying to absolve whiteness and trying to absolve cis people and trying to absolve straight people. And trying to absolve able-bodied people and wealthy and rich people. Like, oh, they're not that bad. Yes, the fuck they are. Fucking at kindergarten. I don't give a fuck how old small they are. (laughs) Yes, they are. And it's okay. And, you know, it's not okay. But let's have that conversation. Let's understand why they are. Let's understand why if you fucking a kindergartner, a white kindergartner who's wealthy and, and got great, like, real paid parents who work in some high paid business position or whatever in New York and you have access to the best food and you doing whatever the fuck you know rich people do I don't know I ain't never been rich (laughs) and how your life looks completely different and how how you might get into schools and have access to shit that other people will never ever see in their whole life and won't even be able to even scrape the surface of 
You know, like that is a conversation we, we should be having. How like we are talking about a caste system. Yes. A caste system. So that's why I get frustrated when I see these memes like kids are not racist. Come on now. Like we are too old for this. We are too old for this. Like this, we have there's other conversations that we should be having. I'm concerned. Well, and, and that's the thing. It's, it's blame shifting. It's people not wanting to feel accountable for the horrors that they see going on every day. They want to somehow take themselves out of the situation and, and, you know, feel safe and feel like, well, that's not me. It's like, I'm not one of the bad apples. Those are the bad apples over there. When the reality of the situation is, you know, you are one of the bad apples. The whole orchard is fucked up. The whole thing. is. So we just need to, to mow the whole shit down and, and start replant. from scratch. Like what you hear? You can find my mom and dad, a.k.a. That Black Couple, on the web at thatblackcouple.com. You can find them on Facebook at That Black Couple, and you can find them on Instagram and Twitter at That BLK Couple. If you have questions or comments about the show, email them at thatblkcouple at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. All right, and we're back. So, in the reflection today, you know, it's been a really heavy episode, I think. Mm-hmm. Covered a lot of really heavy topics today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what I, I really think what we're going to do now is just reflect on our own experiences growing up, dealing with issues of race, gender, class, and, you know, a whole litany of other social issues. Yeah, I'll start. I mean, I think when I think about this topic and talking to kids about the realities that they're facing... The one thing that sticks out to me the most is like my mom was a social worker. She retired uh, when I was in college and oh no, she retired when I was out of college, when I was pregnant, when I was second child. Yeah. You had graduated. Yeah. And she was a social worker for like 30 years. And I remember she was working when AFDC, which is the aid to families with dependent children program changed to the TANF, which is temporary aid to needy families. And that was under Bill Clinton. That was the first president that I remembered. And uh, he, you know, he was a moderate and really kind of, in a lot of ways, bent to the will of a lot of conservatives in the, in Congress. And I didn't understand all that back then. But my mom would always take me with her when she would go vote. And, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about stuff because, you know, it, she was in the house with me. It was just me and her. So she talked to me about her voting decisions. But when the AFDC changed to TANF, she told me about the impacts that that would have on families and specifically on like black moms and how the requirements under TANF required a lot more work from black moms. Like they had to be seeking more labor. They had to have more consistent labor. The aid that they would receive was more temporary. They couldn't be on it. They didn't receive as much money. Um, and that it was going to be harder on kids who had mothers who were receiving social welfare benefits through their, uh, state providers. So I remember that conversation because my mom used very clear terms with me. Like she was very clear with me, like, this is a major problem. It's actually going to really be hard for a lot of moms who I've been working with for a number of years because they've been on AFDC. They're looking for work, but it's very hard to find you know, good, reliable work, especially when you have more than like one child and you don't have childcare. So this change is going to make a, a an additional burden on these mothers who are actually working really hard. Like it's hard for them to be poor. You know, it's hard for them to uh, be on welfare. And I was like, what, I guess maybe 10 or 11. And, you know, I'm sure some people would say that she probably shouldn't have been having that kind of conversation with me. But I remember it to this day, and I remember thinking when I got older and I was reading about the AFDC and reading about TANF and feeling like, wow, I already know all this shit. I already know how this all works. And I'm sure it probably seeded something in me and my interest in politics and sociology and understanding, like, you know, the impacts of political decision making on black women. I'm sure, I mean, that's what I study now. And I'm sure it has some impact on me. And I think that. To go back to our original topic on Charlottesville and how we sometimes try to shield children, young people 
from these topics. Like if my mother had not really told me about that and not been really upfront about it and I discovered it later on, it would have been my first time seeing it. Right. And I would have been completely unaware that that had ever even happened. I wouldn't even have had that history. And so now I had, or I had, had, by the time I found out about it again in college and read about it again in college, I had already known about it for like 15 years. And, and I mean, isn't it important that you had that understanding of the world as it was happening and, right. not, and not looking backward? Right. Right. And I think it's one of those things where like when it's happening, you don't realize how valuable it's going to be to you down the line. But my mother took it as a very serious responsibility. I think for me, raising me, she always said, you know, you're a young black woman and you really need to understand the world around you. And I need to prepare you for what you're going to face out there. And I have no idea what you're going to fa- what you're going to face. I have no idea what you're going to come up against. I don't know what you're going to be when you grow up. So I'm just going to prepare you for everything. And then you decide what you want to be. And that was one of the things she told me all about social welfare and about social policy. And then who, who would have thought that one day I'd be pursuing a PhD in political science, studying black women, you know? Right. Well, and I, and I think that's the thing, right? As parents, you, I feel like you want to arm your kids. You want to have them ready and prepared to do whatever it is they want to do. Right. When I think back on my, my childhood, my, my mother was not like yours in that, in that sense. We didn't really have like a lot of conversations like about like really political things that were happening or, or racial injustice or any, any of those things. Um, but what I what I do remember is that my mother was really good about putting me in different situations with different people so that I could have a a nuanced understanding of the world and under and understand like when I went to school and I went to a private school that that's not. The whole world that there's a big world and if you go to other places there's other people doing other things and i think that helped me and she was also available if i had any questions so if there if i asked her anything she was always willing and able to answer me and, and be honest and, and forthright but i i didn't really have i think that 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 push that you did of this is what ha- what is happening right now and i want to educate you on it so that you'll you'll be prepared for your future right and so for me, what, what that led to was there were some things that I had to figure out when I was already an adult. So I ha- had to, you know, I had to really understand how politics worked, not not just say, oh, I'm a Republican or a Democrat and I vote that way because like so many people do where they say, well, my parent was, you know, in this party, so I vote that party. But I had to really understand politics and, and the history of that and, and what goes into each of the parties and how, you know, no party is perfect. And sometimes your party does things that you disagree with and, and are in your best interest and really understanding the nuance of all those things and understanding things. I think a lot of things too, I, I kind of picked up through media. I was, I was very much into listening to, to radio and, and watching TV and kind of distilling ideas and thoughts and, and understandings of the world through that lens. Yeah. And so a lot of times those things were very broad or vague and, and had no nuance to them. And I had to really kind of go back and rethink and understand, okay, why do I think that? Why do I do this thing? And realizing it's because, well, I never really thought about it. I never really had an understanding of it. When I, you know, when I think about Bill Clinton, like you're talking about, about TANF, you know, I think about Bill Clinton. I remember, oh, well, he played the saxophone, <laughs> you know, and a lot of black people liked him. They said, they said he's the first black president. Oh, God. Like, like at the time, like when Bill Clinton was in office, like that was my understanding of him. And not, I didn't really have an understanding of the political issues and things that were going on. Right. Yeah. I think my mom was really concerned about my survival because she, you know, had already had my brother and she had my brother pretty young and um, basically raised him by herself for a while too. And then ended up raising me by herself. So she was really just trying to prepare me for potentially being a single mom and also just maybe being on my own, maybe not even being a mom, but just being on my own. So I think a lot of what she was doing was like, you're a black woman in America and there's just some shit you got to understand. You know, there's just some things that you have to know. And it's funny, like this idea of like equipping a child. Like I like that idea. I like the idea of like, you're really equipping someone to move out into the world. And if you think about parenting or even like, not just parenting, not, not like traditional parenting. Like I, adopted or or gave birth to a child but just like the ways that adults help to socialize and raise children a lot of us raise children a lot of us interact with other people's kids 
And some of us are even teachers. Some, right. And that's a big deal. Like some of us raise other people's kids through our professional life. And the ways that we impart certain types of socialization on those kids is so critically important. And I think that there's ways that we have to be very careful because we absolutely are equipping them. I remember I had teachers. I remember when I was four, I had a teacher named Miss DeFreeze. And I remember her being like, when you become a star, don't forget about me. And I remember thinking like, what is she talking about? I was so awkward and I had Coke bottle glasses and like big buck teeth. And I'm like, I'm never going to be a star. What are you talking about? And I had like teachers who a lot of times would like usher me along all through elementary and junior high school and high school who kind of looked out for me and socialized me into believing in myself. They could tell I was queer. And like I had, I had queer teachers who I think had clocked me very early on. I had no one to talk about Mm -hmm. it with. And I wasn't even out, but I think they knew, you know? And so they like kind of took me under their wing or whatever. And I think there's ways that we, we can socialize young people and children into understanding themselves and the world better. And we should do that. And that should be a priority. And this idea that we can somehow just abstain from that, just not do it and still expect them to grow up and and be complete is just asinine to me. And that's how that's that's been my answer the whole time in Charlottesville. That's how we got there. That's how we got those those fools with those tiki torches because we have an entire system that creates folks like that in the first place and endorses and promotes them. And then we have their parents and their friends and their cousins and their teachers and whoever else who are like Boys will be boys. Kids will be kids. Oh, kids aren't racist. It's okay. That's how we got that. Just, just like that parent who, you know, discovered that that his son was a Nazi. Like, you're playing games. Like, if, if you're raising your child, you know your child. You know your child's a damn Nazi. You know, you, you've seen the stuff that they had in their room. Come on now. You can't say that you didn't at least overhear a conversation they had with a friend or, or you know, see someone pull up at the house to, to, you know, take them to a white power rally. Like, you can't you can't act like, oh, my gosh, this, this is a complete shock. I never would have expected that my child, my child would be. No, you, you saw the signs and you, you decided to ignore them. Exactly. And I think that's the whole point of, I guess, this episode was to say that, you know, when we talk about phenomenon like Charlottesville, when we talk about that, that type of phenomenon, when we talk about these kind of racial displays or other type of violent displays, um, not just along racial lines, but gender, sexuality, ability, size, you know, when we see these types of like showings where a group that's in a dominant position is acting, you know, literally to hush, harm, kill, or violently act against a group that is not in a dominant position. We have to stop doing this deflecting and we have to stop doing this. Like, let's talk about the kids. We have to stop this. Like we have to take responsibility for our shit. We have to take responsibility for our kids and our friends' kids and our nephews and nieces, and auntie and uncle, and homie, and who else? And, you know, we have to take responsibility for that because otherwise we're part of the problem. Exactly. All right, y'all. That's the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram or Twitter at that couple. You can find us at Facebook at that black couple. You can find us on the web at thatblackcouple.com. And you can find streaming episodes at Google Play and on SoundCloud. Thanks.